Welcome back. You are listening to Nate the Hate on YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Be sure to like the video and subscribe if you haven't already and ring that notification bell so that you are notified each time we have a new episode go live on YouTube. I'd like to welcome in my co-host, Modern Vintage Gamer. What's going on, Nate? Great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Great to have you. There was a lot of excitement this week, but first I have to give a shout out to this episode's three, a hat trick of dedication. A treble. I would call a it a treble. treble. A treble. And the three dedications this week go out to Shamsa, Amerigamer YouTube, or YT, and the Zelda Sensei, all whom have generously donated $100 or more to support the channel. We appreciate your continued support. And if you'd like to make a donation, we have a Streamlabs link in the description below. Donate $100 or more. We will dedicate the episode to you. Or you can donate any dollar amount. Ask a question. We will answer it at the end of the episode. And once again, today's episode is dedicated to Shamsa, Amerigamer YT, and the Zelda Sensei. Thank you for your support. And today's topic is a duo. We are going to talk about the official confirmation that E3 2021 will be taking place in June, and it's a digital event, and the recent data mine of a Switch firmware that may potentially give insight into the long-standing Switch revision for 2021, early 2022, dubbed the Switch Pro, and some of the functionality that may be introduced in the brand new Switch hardware. But first, we are going to start with the E3 topic, as we have a small selection of companies who have committed to participating in E3 this year, and those companies are Nintendo, Capcom, Xbox, Konami, Ubisoft, Take-Two Interactive, Warner Brothers, and Koch Media. And this is just an early list of commitments if you how you know if you have some worries that companies such as Sega, Bandai Namco, Square Enix aren't going to be at the show, you're not wrong to be fearful, but this list can evolve. It's not a finalized participant list. Some of those companies can still enroll and have a event at E3 this year. But a notable omission is Sony, and this shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone. Sony has been quite vocal that they have removed themselves from E3 planning now for the last couple of years. So Sony's absence is expected. And I wouldn't be surprised if we see Sony have a state of play maybe in May, a little, say, before the typical E3 presentation timing, because Sony's been silent for the majority of 2021 up to this point. Wait, wait, wait. Silent? Is that a is that a hint at something? <laughs> Silent Hill, the <laughs> long-standing rumor. That's something we'll discuss this episode when we get to the topic of Konami. So for now, we will be silent on that hill. <laughs> one. So with the E3 confirmation, my first thought was, wow, I was actually impressed by the amount of commitment from publishers because when I look at this list, Specifically, Nintendo, Xbox, Konami, Capcom, Ubisoft. All of these companies have kind of perfected their own means of marketing with their own digital events. And I fail to see the advantage 
of, you know, cooperating with the ESA yeah. and having an E3 presentation. Yeah, I mean, last year we had the Summer Games mess, you know. We've had Jeff Grubb on the show numerous times going going through that, talking about it. It did feel like that maybe there was the sands were shifting a little to the smaller bite-sized uh, showcases, events, presentations. But I think ultimately the ESA obviously still has a role to play even in a digital year of of e3 and look i think you know i mean how would you rate last year as far as the presentations the way that they're all scattered and you know the kind of just the underlying um bite-sized you know information that was being fed to us i didn't particularly think it was was great Mm -hmm. um what did you think you know how did you feel about that the way that the summer game fest was handled was atrocious. It didn't have any hierarchy. Yeah. It was basically just Jeff Keeley saying, I made a hub page and I'll tweet after a company like Activision comes out and says, we have an announcement on Tuesday. All of a sudden you had Keeley just attach his name saying summer game fest announcement Tuesday. Like, was it really a summer game fest announcement or was it simply Activision was announcing Tony Hawk Pro Skater 2 yeah. on that Tuesday without you. And that was the thing. There was no structure. Right. And I think it harmed it because without that structure, it just felt like it was just chaos. And I'm not against news coming out at any point of the week at any time of a month. That's how we go for every other, you know, the 11 months of the year. But it felt so disorganized that it was just, here's yeah. Sony one day, here's Nintendo the next, here's Activision, here's Capcom, here's Miscellaneous Indie Studio. Right. If they really wanted to do something good and they really want to have Summer Game Fest, they would have had some sort of organization. It would have been coordinated. Uh, it wouldn't have just been random stream, random tweet. Yeah. And, and I think ultimately that's why the ASA is doing this. You know, like, look, love them or hate them like i i don't think i'm a fan of their executive team i don't i'm not a fan of some of their business practices and some of the things that they do but one thing you have to commend them for is they know how to organize events like this they know how to rally publishers and get them signed up for for e3 and get them on board with it and they've obviously done a lot of legwork to get these companies back because you're right nate they could have easily you know microsoft Nintendo, um, you know, Take Two, Capcom—they all could have said, "You know, we're we're going to just do our own our own shows, you know, because digital. So mm-hmm. we don't want to invest our money with you, you know. We don't want to spend millions on a digital show when we can just do our own live stream or put together our own presentation." So obviously, the ESA has enough pull where they they said, "Well, you know, you know, come back to us. We'll." We'll do it properly. We'll, we'll, you know, organize it, schedule it, and it's going to be a hype event. So you have to definitely give them props for, for getting E3 back, I guess, this year in a digital space. And look, I, I'm kind of excited to see this, you know, as much as I have issues with the ESA. I, I did not like last year the way that all went down. And I was a little fearful that, we were going to go into 2021 with the same kind of roadmap and 
I mean, it looked like mm-hmm. it, it was it was coming. Um, and in some ways, the ESA has just kind of snuffed that all out, you know, with this. So I, I am excited to see, you know, what, what they have in store for us. Look, is, is it going to be, you know, an amazing show? Well, that <laughs> remains to be seen. I, I, I don't know, but I do think it's a good step back, you know, to to E3 as a um, physical show, I guess, you know, next year. Yes. Yeah, I think this year is going to be a vital stepping stone for next year and bringing E3 back to at least some sense of its former glory. Because this year, being a digital event, I would say the ESA likely shifted their focus primarily for the consumer. They want to make a engaging show for the fans, a four-day event where we get to see new trailers, new announcements, live streams, all of that, all the stuff the fans care about. Yeah. On an industry level, I don't know if this E3 is going to make any meaningful strides to connect creators with big publishing houses or developers. You know, as far as that networking goes, right. that is probably still going to be problematic. But that's, you know, that would be something that's more behind the scenes. It's not going to be something that the fans in the community are really going to be privy to because there's no reason for us to. Yeah. Yeah. And that's always a big part of the in-person E3 is that networking aspect. But for this year, being that digital event and really just connecting with the consumer, I think the digital the digital path is potentially a smart avenue for them to consider. And we've said it before, like last year with how E3 was struggling, even in general before COVID really struck, is that they became this event where they want to be consumer friendly, but they also want to be an industry professional event. And the two didn't mix. You had thousands upon thousands of people on the show floor. You had outlets who couldn't get the demos because the line was three hours long. That's not good for an industry professional event. Mm-hmm. Like I'm there to work. I'm not there for fun. And when you let in the public, you kind of, you know, you shed some of that professional image. This being a consumer event this year is the smart way to go. It can get people excited. It allows the publishers to connect with that fan base that they're trying to sell the games to. So I think this is a vital stepping stone for them moving into the future. And it gives them, I want to say, a foundation for E3 2022. Now they could better coordinate with these publishers and maybe deliver a fully fleshed out digital event for E3 moving forward, where maybe we have digital booths that we can visit from an app or even from the systems itself. And we can access demos, we can access trailers, or we get just a virtual tour of the booth space that we would see on the show floor. All these little things like augmented reality, those little things just to make the experience more immersive for us at home. Maybe this year is going to be that stepping point mm-hmm. for them to consider moving into the future and really making it an immersive thing for everybody. And, you know, they had to hit rock bottom yep. to advance. And maybe we've hit that moment. Maybe the ESA has learned. We'll find out in, you know, the coming weeks when this event does take place. But it is good to have a centralized, focused, four-day period for gaming news for publishers to connect with fans and 
you know, for the community to rally around saying, hey, June 12th through June 15th, that's the place to be for news. As opposed to last year where it was June 1st to, <laughs> I'm not sure if the Summer Game Fest has concluded it yet. Never, it never did because it, <laughs> it just kept going. Are, are we still in it? I, I think technically we are, yes. I think we are. The longest running gaming <laughs> event of all time. <laughs> but it's, I'm excited to see what happens this year. I think the ESA has a lot to prove. And Absolutely. it is encouraging yeah. to see the companies that they have, you know, on board so far with just having Nintendo and Xbox there is big. Those are, it's two of the three console manufacturers. Right. It's, it's a powerful announcement it's a powerful statement because mm-hmm. like they could have announced e3 and M- nintendo and microsoft may not have you know thrown their name in the ring and then maybe you had some bigger publishers trickled with you know some smaller ones that wouldn't have had the same impact i think as having nintendo and microsoft at mm-hmm. this show i mean that's that's very very encouraging um and i think it's 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 great it's great marketing for them but it also gets you excited about the potential of what we'll see now right because i mean we all we all kind of assume that nintendo would have a direct around e3 time and i guess this is pretty much just confirming that for us um and we all announced well we all thought that microsoft would have something as well either by themselves or with bethesda or maybe both um so i think you know both those questions now get answered that that we'll probably see those see a lot of this discussion i see people associate like oh well nintendo has announced that they are going to be participating in the digital e3 so that means we're going to have a direct at e3 the weird thing is is that yes this is a matters of semantics yep the nintendo direct was not part of e3 right just like microsoft's showing at E3 Pass, their press conference was not part of E3. Neither was EA Play. These were individual events that were just so happened to be coordinated to the timing of E3 and the days that would follow. And that's a question I've had when I look at this calendar. And like June 12th, this is actually a very unique situation for E3. As you know, E3 is typically Tuesday to Thursday. Yes. And then you'd have Nintendo Tuesday morning have their E3, their direct. Yep. They would do it before the show floor opened. Microsoft would be on Monday, sometimes Sunday, and then Sony would be either Monday or Sunday, depending on how Microsoft fit in. This year, E3 is Saturday through Tuesday. Now, If you're Microsoft or Xbox, as they're officially listed as, do you host your showing on Friday night? Or do you still go ahead of the official start of E3 and broadcast Thursday night? We'll be back after a quick break. Ever thought modern video games should be more interesting? At the Gaming Blender, we take randomized genres, mechanics, and make a new game every episode. I've added permadeath. We have a survival game of a hardcore simulation, which could be House Flipper, and with the permadeath of XCOM. Then that all has to be an action adventure. Yes. Ooh, dear. Yes. And sometimes... 
it doesn't quite work. And you you have a construction off over the course of the of the narrative. A construction off. The <laughs> way the way we can do this is that we ditch your idea entirely. Entirely. Check out the Gaming Blender on all your favorite podcast platforms now. I mean, I think what what we should consider is that this year I feel like, you know, Microsoft is in, is a part of this, right? Like, you're right. I mean, last year, yeah, I mean, Microsoft's always been involved in E3, but they had their own, well, they have their own theater and they, you know, they run their own event, right? Which just happens to be right across the road from the LA Convention Center. So... In some ways, it's not a part of E3, but in other ways, it's it's a part of E3 because they're literally right there. But you know, for them to put their name in the ring and say we're going, we, you know, we're we're going to E3, and Phil Spencer's tweet about E3, it makes me believe that they won't go before the show starts. I think they'll go during the show this this year. But you know, anything could happen. And we, I guess, the other unknown is: is this a Xbox show or is it? xbox and bethesda or is bethesda a a separate part of this or is it not even in the conversation i mean there's a lot of questions here we gotta we gotta try to dissect and understand yeah like nintendo is going to be part of the show doug bowser put out a tweet where he said it's going to be great to get the video game industry back together with our fans this june we'll make the virtual format fun and engaging looking forward to seeing you all in june now, this is the earliest Nintendo of America has ever acknowledged E3. They typically wait until around mid-May to announce any type of E3 plans. And when I read his tweet, it indicates to me that Nintendo is probably prepping a website or some sort of Switch application that we're going to be able to engage yeah. with a virtual format be it we can explore the virtual nintendo booth we can visit the zelda booth as an example mm-hmm. click on the booth watch a brand new trailer no demos or anything like that because nintendo nintendo's not going to give us a demo of a game like breath of the wild 2 because it would be data mined yeah. and that'd be a nightmare well i mean I, I was thinking about that before we we started you know recording this show because you know in the past right you go to E3 and you sit there waiting in line for like four hours to get a chance to play Link's Awakening um, or, um, you know, the new Pokemon game or uh, Astral Chain, uh, which was, that, that's the year that I went last to E3 2019. Um, and one question I always had was, you know, why why sit here in line for such a long time to, to play a game for 20 minutes? Why not just drop demos so you could just download them and play them at your own leisure, you know, and avoid the lines, right? Um, but you're right. I think that the the answer to that is Nintendo doesn't want to do that because there is always that fear that these games will get data mined, um, you know, for for information. I mean, they they get data mined as it is, um, and there's obviously yes. been a lot of things that have come out of those data mines. So, you know, they they just don't want to have to deal with that. And I think a lot of other companies that feel the same, you know, when they drop demos, because usually those demos aren't really in a, I'll say a publicly um, uh, appropriate state in that, in that, you know, their debug builds, they may have access to code that, that normally wouldn't be 
in a part of a release build of the game. So yeah, I, I think ultimately, you know, they won't do that. I think let's shift into some of our early predictions for E3 with these companies and how they could approach it. And we'll start with Nintendo because we've kind of started with them as is. And like Doug Bowser's tweet, there is a high likelihood that Nintendo will have a Nintendo Direct that week. If not, that's first Saturday of June 12th. Yeah, I mean, I think so. Uh, but it could be anything. I mean, it could be a right. partner showcase. It could be a, 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 a mini direct. It could be an indies. I mean, it's mm-hmm. going to be a direct, and I'm using air quotes, but it, it could be any any type of show. Yeah, and even if it's not during the four days that we are now classifying as E3 2021, I could see it ahead of it, and then Nintendo use their E3 timing for a Treehouse Live segment. This is something they have used in years past. Yes. And whatever marketing agreement they have with the ESA or whatever the ESA is offering, I could see them stream that Treehouse Live segment on the official E3 Twitch page, YouTube page, whatever the ESA is going to have set up. And I mean, if I'm Nintendo, I still want to go one step further. I want to be able to engage with the fans in a more direct manner. And... I'm not sure how you do that beyond just a website, some sort of app. Maybe you can download on the Switch itself. But you're still not going to have demos given directly to the consumer, as we mentioned with the data mine fears. Right. So if you're Nintendo, how are you going to make this E3 week really feel any different than just a Nintendo Direct with a daily Treehouse Live segment? Because they have done Treehouse Lives separate from E3. It's not exclusive to their E3 presentation. Yeah, they, they did it with uh, Paper Mario, I think. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yes, they did it a few times over the course of 2020 with games like Paper Mario. Yes. So Nintendo is definitely in a position of, you really have to make this feel unique. Like this is part of E3. Otherwise, if it's just going to feel like, here's a direct presentation, here's a live house, or here's a Treehouse Live segment, you could have done this without the ESA's involvement. So look, I think what they'll probably do is they'll have live streams with um, mm-hmm. maybe Nintendo ambassadors and and have them play some of these games alongside of them okay. and and pull their audience in and stuff. I mean, I think they can they can definitely pull the community in in some way and and maybe they'll you know they'll utilize the ambassador program to to, to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you could do that. I mean, that would be an interesting way for them to approach E three because this. I'd say this is a fairly important E3 for Nintendo. Yep, we, I would agree. Like We have a lot of the talks of a revision coming. I do not anticipate that Nintendo would give any news regarding a revision at E3, unless, not unless the revision itself is launching within an E3 window, which I would give till the end of September. Right. You don't want to announce it too far in advance because all you do is limit your sales potential of the switch moving throughout the year so if this is a product that's not coming out until early 2022 you don't need to announce it in june of 2021 you announce it closer to release maybe two maybe three months in advance so i'm going into e3 as of this moment of april 8th Mm -hmm. that we do not hear of the switch revision at e3 yeah when i think nintendo at e3 2021 i'm not feeling new hardware i think this is purely you know a direct whatever whatever that will entail 
some Zelda stuff. I think we'll we'll definitely see um, whatever that mm-hmm. will entail. And you're right, there'll be a treehouse, which um, you know they'll, they'll they'll get into, which I think will be kind of cool. But yeah, I, I think any any hardware announcement will be on their own terms. You know when they when they are ready to do so. Now, software Nintendo typically uses E3 as the point where they communicate their second half of the year releases. And everyone is waiting for the update of Breath of the Wild 2. This is a game we have not seen in two years. It's a long time. But not all that uncommon for a Zelda game that typically get delayed and then disappear then make a glorious return. And we have to remember, this year is Zelda's 35th anniversary. We have yet to begin the celebration. All we have is a release date for The Legend of Zelda, Skyward Sword coming out in July. So E3 seems like the perfect place to make, I'll say a big spectacle, the Zelda 35th anniversary celebration. E3 2021, we know they wanted to make Mario's 35th a big E3 deal. We didn't have any semblance of an E3 Direct Nintendo chose to do a bunch of partner minis instead. So I think Zelda will be the focus for their E3 software. Not saying that it's not going to be other announcements, but I think Zelda is going to be the theme. Yes, I agree. It's going to be the anchor, right? I mean, it's going to be the big the big thing that they have. Mm-hmm. Whether that is... And- um, Breath of the Wild 2 information or more the collection side? I'm not sure. I think it has to be both. If you, as Nintendo, go into E3 this year and you don't give any meaningful update to Breath of the Wild 2, I think fans are going to start getting a little impatient. And we have to remember Nintendo, in their last General Direct, just about over a month ago now, they did say you will get Breath of the Wild 2 news later this year. Yes, they did. I feel like E3 2021 has to be the venue for that. And I do believe, as of this moment, it will be given a 2022 release window. So you're thinking at E3 2021, Nintendo will drop a new trailer, we'll say, and then they'll mm-hmm. they'll have the, uh, the, the numbers 2021 at the end. Uh, sorry, 2022 at the end of it. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, I, I can see that happening. And then they happening. detail the remainder of the year with here's Twilight Princess yep. and the Wind Waker package and coming out. The collection, yeah. Yeah, here's the collection coming out. Let's say Skyward Swords July. So I say second half September, maybe first half October. Yep. Something like that. And if you have a game and watch for Zelda 1, yep. you really, you know, you give some details about that. And then, you know, they also have another sell They have actually two anniversaries this year. There's also Donkey Kong's 40th and Metroid's yep. anniversary. <laughs> and we've talked about it a few times, but I do anticipate that we will finally hear news of a Metroid game coming out in 2021. And I believe it would be a 2D Metroid with hopes, or maybe Nintendo still has the hope of having Metroid Prime Trilogy also release within the fiscal year. Not necessarily the calendar 2021, but within the fiscal year, concluding March of 2022. 
if we got Metroid and Zelda at E3, that would be a pretty hype in it. Pretty hype E3 for Nintendo. That would be one of their best ones they've had in a while. Yeah, it would have shades of the E3 where they had was it Mario Sunshine, Wind yeah. Waker, and Metroid yep. Prime. Yep. The was that the Holy Trinity. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean that that could all uh, look. We've we've speculated on this stuff before. Yes. Um, you know, we felt like both Zelda and Metroid, you know, should have already been here by now. So yeah, I mean, the timing is is right for this to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just it's so hard to know, you know, what's happening with Metroid to really go in go into it with a lot of confidence and say yes this is this is the time yeah. for metroid but between <laughs> between a 2d metroid and the prime trilogy i, I think at least one of those ha- have to, has to drop at e3 yeah i would say definitely one has to have a showing at e3 because one of the two has to come out this year we've heard yeah. about 2d metroid now for it feels like three years at least so development has to be either finished or nearing completion. Metroid Prime Trilogy is something we have heard about now for two plus years. This is something they had been working on. It's just a question of are they sitting on it in typical Nintendo fashion right. because of the delay to Metroid Prime 4, which this is that's another game we haven't had an update on in, what, well over two and a half years. Yeah. Are we going to get all of that at this E3? <laughs> I don't know. The problem with E3 season is you build up all this hype and anticipation for the single event for a company, and you usually get a fraction. Well, last year was the oh. Game Awards, and that was even worse because there was no E3. So we were yeah, everyone waiting for stuff at right. the Game Awards, and nothing happened. Everyone looked at the Game Awards saying, we have to get that Breath of the Wild 2 update. Nintendo's going to have a bunch of stuff. And I remember we did our predictions podcast discussion and i went in very hesitant of i think we get a smash character and <laughs> not much else from nintendo yeah, and you called it the show opened with a smash character and not much else and even people like i think sony's gonna have a lot and i was like at best i think sony gives us like a ratchet and clank trailer with a release date instead we got a returnal trailer and the show was mostly controlled by microsoft yep and microsoft for e3 they're in a very interesting position. This is the year. This is the year where Microsoft could just grab E3 by the scruff of the neck and say, <laughs> we are going to win E3. We have, we are primed and ready. We have the games. We have the studios. Uh-huh. We have so much cool stuff we can show. There's so much cool stuff that you guys don't know about and we're going to reveal at this show. They could yes. easily just dominate e3 and that's what gives me pause and hesitation because every time i felt like microsoft has been in this situation in the past they've they've stumbled a little so Mm -hmm. with that said i think they'll have a good e3 this year because right now there's a lot of momentum with microsoft their marketing is exceptional they're doing all the right moves but you know i would also ground expectations as well um with with what you know they'll show us i do think this is this is microsoft's e3 to win they we've i said it last year several times microsoft just had to survive 2021 because it looked like sony was coming out really strong yeah 
And they have suffered a few delays, like Gran Turismo 7's delayed till 2022. Ratchet and Clank arrived later than originally planned. God of War was delayed. But that's yeah, God story. of War is looking like it will get pushed into 2022. And we know... As of now, Horizon is slated for second half of 2021. There is the chance that could get delayed too. But that awesome 2021 year that Sony looked to be having is slowly falling apart. And Microsoft is surviving up to this point. And they're surviving by making strong Game Pass deals with Outriders, MLB The Show. And this is going to be something that continues for the duration of 2021. They're going to make big Game Pass deals with third-party publishers, and they're going to expand Game Pass offerings well into the year. So they're surviving by using the Game Pass initiative in a really smart manner, but E3 will also be that pivotal time where we are reintroduced to Halo Infinite. Yes, and I think there will be a trailer, and I Mm -hmm. think they will not make the same mistake as last time with Craig. This will be a a really well-polished trailer uh, with gameplay that will mm-hmm. just completely remove the, the previous one out of your mind. I think this will be big for Microsoft, and it has to be as well. You know, I think, I think the pressure's on for them to show us more of Halo, but I think they'll deliver it this time. You know, obviously, last yes. time was was obviously it wasn't ready, and they mm-hmm. they scrambled, and you know what they gave us wasn't wasn't terrific, but they will not make the same mistake with Halo, and I think Halo will be a pivotal part of their showing, and honestly, you know if you if you do that if you do Halo as kind of your main focus of the show and then drop in a couple of real heavy hitter Game Pass announcements. And look, there's this, you know, rumor going around right now about Battlefield 6 coming to Game Pass later this year. Um, I'm not suggesting that's what they're going to announce, but, you know, some Game Pass announcements that are just top-tier announcements, then that's a pretty good showing from Microsoft. But I don't think it's enough, though, because... They also have studios working on games. You know, we, we need to know more mm-hmm. about Forza, what's happening there, whether that will yes. come out this year. We need to know more about um, Starfield, which, you know, that's a Bethesda discussion I think we'll, we'll talk about as well. But mm-hmm. there's a lot of other things that are kind of up in the air. We don't know what's happening with the next Hellblade game. You know, there are games that are being developed that have been, you know, out there for a while. Will we see any more, any more of fable or uh, any perfect dark updates so there's a lot more that they could definitely show us here yeah microsoft in terms of announcement and updates for e3 2021 is almost endless yes and that's that's what's exciting about it yes it's we have so many games you could get updates on avowed hellblade 2 as you mentioned the bethesda acquisitions software like starfield forza motorsport it's not E3 without a car coming out of the floor descending <laughs> from the ceiling. Right. So we'll probably see Forza in some capacity, be it a new Horizon or the new Motorsport, be at E3. Halo Infinite, Game Pass deals. Microsoft can really position themselves in a strong way at E3. And without Sony having an E3 presence, that's where Microsoft can really just take control. 
they can say, this is why we are going to be the market leader for this generation. We have the best services. We have the best games coming to that service. And E3 is the place to drop the gauntlet. Yeah, Come in with that momentum. And every time, as you mentioned before, every time it seems like Microsoft is in this position, they come to the event primed to hit a home run and they whiff. Yep. And I hope that they have looked at their recent marketing failures with these types of presentations going back to last summer and learned from it. Because when you look at the Game Awards, you come out with Perfect Dark. You come out with all these other announcements that were exciting. That's what you need to go to E3 with. Especially with this all-digital format, you can curate and perfect your presentation to be exactly what you want. Yeah, like Handpick the announcements. Create the presentation that you think is perfect, where it excites, where it piques interest and deliver this is microsoft's time and they've done well these first four months of 2021 and if they can continue that leading to e3 and beyond that tide is going to feel like it's starting to shift and we've talked about this before microsoft was going to really enter the race against the playstation 5 in early 2022 due to delays chips shortage with hardware being extremely limited, the tide might be turning a little earlier. And Microsoft is just out there. It feels like every few weeks with good communication, with Game Pass deals, or expanding their backwards compatibility library by doing frame rate boost. Mm -hmm. They're really positioning themselves in a consumer-friendly appearance. Yeah where it's, it's hard to ignore. Meanwhile, Sony is silent. Sony doesn't have that exciting buzz around them right now. I'm still looking forward to Ratchet & Client coming out in June. I can't wait for that game. But Sony needs to start communicating with us. They need to start building some you know excitement around their brand. Them not being at E3 won't hurt them that much. It hasn't hurt them the last what, three Three years years that they haven't participated? So they're not going to be impacted by this as far as like, oh no, they're not at E3. What are they going to do? They'll have a state of play. They'll market it perfectly because they always nail their marketing when it comes to such presentations. And they will generate a buzz and excitement again. But you can't ignore Microsoft at this point. They just feel like they're on top of their game. They know the message they want to relay to people. And they're doing it. And they're doing it really well. And E3 should continue that. And I'm excited for them to reintroduce Halo. Show us those visual improvements. They show us monthly with the Halo Infinite blog updates. But show us it in motion. Announce a multiplayer beta. Give us the game. Give us some access to the game. And then when you launch it this holiday, you're going to have a lot of excitement. And every passing week, that delay is or looks smarter and smarter. Mm-hmm. It was a delay yeah. that had to happen. And I think in the end, it's going to pay off for them. Yep, I agree. I mean, it's theirs to lose, you know, this E3. You know, mm-hmm. they they are holding a commanding position. 
um, it's really up to them to you know to to bring it home you know at E3, and hopefully this year will will be a good one for them. Now we do have some curious third-party companies participating at E3 this year, and there's none more curious than Konami. Oh boy, a a pachinko machine <laughs> developer has decided to participate at E3. And when I saw them on this list, things started to make noise. It's no longer silent. Did you have a, a radio with static going off in your ear? <laughs> yes. You, you heard the static? The white noise <laughs> began to and the, blast the in my ear. billowing fog started rolling in from outside. <laughs> Some pyramid heads started <laughs> wandering in my yard. I was like, "What is happening?" All right, Nate. Let let let's let's get serious. So, are we going to see Silent Hill at this show? It's. Do you think Konami's going to bring a Silent Hill? My heart says yes. We will see Silent Hill in some capacity at Konami's. E3 presence. There have been the rumors that we would hear about a Silent Hill project this summer. I guess it depends on how technical we want to get with the term summer because E3 technically predates the official beginnings of summer if we go by the equinox. Yep. But if we go by the meteorological start of summer, that is June 1st. And people are saying, what the hell are you talking about? Um, so if we don't take that too literal of a summer announcement, I think E3 is the time we hear about Silent Hill. 2021, we will hear of Silent Hill, even if it's not at this E3. But I think that's why Konami wants to be here. We've seen numerous games have crossover with Silent Hill content. Some of them make no sense. They're like random games that people are like what is this title why does it have silent hill content it feels like konami's gearing up towards something it especially it, it does but it also doesn't because i feel like <laughs> konami's just you know accepting large bags of cash um you know to license their characters in these games you know like a mm -hmm. lot of companies would be like no you can't you can't use our characters because you know you're diluting the character you know you're diluting diluting you know who they are and 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 what what their their story was all about in in the games that we built originally um you know putting in sam fisher in a mobile game you know like stuff like that right <laughs> so it's hard to really know if if konami's just you know taking free money basically in exchange for the use of their you know their characters or you know, to your point, are they gearing up for a Silent Hill reveal? Which, look, if they're going to reveal Silent Hill, it's going to be at E3, right? Um, so yes. I will say that when when I saw Konami's name announced, um, look, I've been someone that's been very vocal that Silent Hill is not really a thing <laughs> that Konami's interested in making. I, I still stand by that. But I, I am a little more nervous that maybe maybe we will see Silent Hill. But what I think we'll see from Konami at this show, Nate, is we're going to see Pro Evolution Soccer 2022 
with a brand new engine um you know with uh ronaldo limited edition you know we're gonna see um a collection of older retro titles like um i don't know like you know what are they made in the past like uh contra or uh, castlevania there'll be there'll be something along those lines where they'll they'll you know have a have a a throwback collection of games that, that get announced mm-hmm. um and maybe they'll shadow drop some stuff you know i i don't know about silent hill like you know would silent hill be at e3 anyway or would it be at like you know a state of play or um you know like there, there's a lot of questions uh, i have about silent hill i guess in that in that regard I, that's kind of the trouble with silent hill is the talks were that there was a Silent Hill that Sony was involved with. There's also a second Silent Hill that isn't involved with Sony. It is a external developer that's working with Konami to develop it. Mm-hmm. So I think for this E3, it would be that second Silent Hill, not the Sony one. So it just feels like it's a good time to finally announce that they are bringing Silent Hill back. And to your point of retro games, I hope we do see a Castlevania collection. I think it's time to bring over the Game Boy Advance. Yeah. Or Castlevanias. Maybe, maybe we're going too far back. Maybe it's like a Metal Gear Solid collection or something, you know, and I know they've already done that. They've mm-hmm. done the HD, you know, the HD remasters of the Metal Gear HD collection, but yes. maybe that gets um, brought forward to next-gen hardware or current-gen hardware they could do that it's a nice simple port it wouldn't it actually fits konami's kind of routine right now it's a very cheap but well regarded project where you add some 4k resolution to it people would buy it for a fair price and you know I feel like for Konami to want to be at this event, they have something meaningful. It's not just going to be, hi, everyone, remember us? Here's <laughs> here's a bunch of low-tier games. They yeah. want to come back and make their presence known. Like, yeah, we don't, we don't have Kojima anymore, but we're here. Here's the return to Silent Hill with our exciting new development partner. And boom, here it is. And I think that's how Konami has to approach this. This is the time. If they want to return, now now is it. You have all the buzz with the Silent Hill rumors. Confirm them. And take your place as one of the highly regarded Japanese third-party developers. I mean, Konami used to be one of the key names of Japanese support. If you had a platform, you wanted Konami support. You wanted Castlevania. You wanted Metal Gear Solid. You wanted Silent Hill. You wanted Sniper Scope. Yep. Or Silent even Pro Scope. Evolution Soccer, Silent Scope. That's it. <laughs> you wanted all the all these Konami IP, and all of a sudden, in the last generation or two, Konami is just a shell of their former self. And old people like us, we have fond memories of Konami of old. And new younger gamers, they don't know what we're talking about. Yep, they do not. So. I want Silent Hill to come back. I want E3 to be the place it does. And, you know, out of all those third parties, I think Konami is the one that has me most excited. I mean, we have Capcom also on the list. Yeah. Capcom is 
they're going to have a great 2021. They've launched Monster Hunter Rise, humongous sales. We have Resident Evil 8 or Resident Evil Village coming out in just over a month. And coming into E3, I'd imagine they could potentially announce the leaked Resident Evil Revelations 3 for Switch that was in the documents for Capcom's roadmap of the next three to five years. Yeah, which, by the way, has been almost one-to-one, right? Like, everything in yes. that document has, has happened. <laughs> so if there's any doubts about that document by now, go back and take a look at it. Because even even it even surprised me that maybe after we saw that, that maybe they would change tact a little bit and just mix some things around. They haven't done any of that. It's been pretty much on cue, you know, these announcements. Yeah, so Capcom is probably... They will have a tougher time surprising. I think so too. I mean, I agree with you. I think I think Konami is the biggest surprise for me and i'm genuinely excited to see what they what they show us because it could be anything you know they could they could bring some really cool stuff um to to this e3 but the skeptic in me just feels like we'll get something but maybe not everything that we're thinking they'll they'll give us i mean we'll do a full e3 predictions video once we get closer to the June date, and we have a full list of participants. But like, just based on what we know and some of the predictions just we gave with Nintendo, Xbox, Konami, I do feel hopeful that this E3 will be a solid show for us consumers. And I do hope the ESA and the publishing partners are working hard and creating a unique way to engage with us. Because as we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, this is going to be a vital year for them. They have to deliver an entertaining and meaningful E3 experience for us at home to generate that excitement. And there is just default excitement because it is the return of E3. We didn't have E3 last year. We had the summer game mess and people are just happy to have E3 back in some semblance, but they still have to deliver a quality show. This can't under deliver and the ESA has to go out of their way and make sure yeah. that this is quality and the publishers are going to do their part. They're all going to come in and say, we know what we want to deliver. Let's do it. But we need the ESA to coordinate a live stream schedule or an interactive experience that allows us to convey the experience in, the experience in a meaningful way. And I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that they do. Yep. I think it's going to be good. I mean, you're right. This is a this is a test for them this year. Um, they have to they have to do well. Um, but if they can win back the confidence of of the people and and the publishers, then yeah, I think next year will be bigger and better. Yeah, that's a big vital piece of this. This is their chance to win back the confidence of the publishers and to have Nintendo, Xbox, Capcom, Ubisoft, Take Two, Interactive all sign on means they must have saw something that they really liked to, you know, really attach themselves to this. So that's encouraging. And, you know, this will be a topic that we touch on more as we get closer to E3. But right now, it seems like we're moving in the right direction. And I'm excited to see what E3 will bring. And now a big topic that came out this week is that the Switch got a firmware update, which really didn't do much 
in terms of functionality for the user, but these always come with data mines. And this one was no different. And the last time we had a meaningful data mine, it included you know, a prototype system or a code name. And that led to a lot of speculation. And this one also gave hints of some functionality that the Switch Revision or Switch Pro could utilize. One of them was a dock. It is known as the iCradle firmware update, which implies that the dock is going to allow for firmware updates. Now, the current Switch dock is really nothing. Yeah, it's it's a, it, you know, it's th- there's, in it. <laughs> there's, there's like there's nothing smart about it. It's just a piece of plastic, really. Yeah, it's an HDMI converter, basically. Yep. And some flash memory that you could store the firmware update on. One thing about the current Switch dock is that it does have a USB 3.0 drive that serves no functionality. We don't know why it's there, but it's there. And in this firmware update, they enabled something called Cradle A firmware update supported. Now, this led to speculation that the A means Aula, which was the code name for the Switch revision that based on firmware of the past was using Mariko, but could potentially have a new screen. Now, that really doesn't mean much of anything. Sounds on its like own. a reach to me. Yeah, it's just a letter. <laughs> <laughs> could be just the first revision. It could also be that. Yep. And I mean, when I looked at this information and I looked at you know a little deeper about what was actually there, they showed the default values where it showed that platform configuration ICOSA and platform configuration ICOSA Marico, that is just the retail hybrid model. It equaled true. So that means that these would be supported for this Cradle firmware update. Now, this could be very rudimentary. It could be as simple as the new dock, which Nintendo would need to release for the Switch Pro or Switch Revision, will be compatible with current Switch hardware. Nothing too exciting. Pretty basic. Mm -hmm. And the reason, as we discussed in previous episodes, you know, very recently with John Linneman, is that they would have to release a new dock to achieve 4K. The current dock is not compatible for 4K 60. It could only do 4K 30, which would be be a nightmare for game developers. So you need a new dock to deliver that 4K experience, which would be achieved with DLSS. So the Cradle information is really nothing substantial. It's really nothing meaningful whatsoever. The interesting update comes from Bluetooth driver support. This was added with the firmware 12.00. And right now, it doesn't seem to be used by anything. Now, Bluetooth is a very basic feature. This is a very simple function. Why the current switch doesn't have Bluetooth support, no one really knows. Nintendo disabled it for whatever reason. This gives hope that Nintendo will enable Bluetooth for the Switch Pro. There's definitely some things we can take away from from the addition of Bluetooth. You know, you could say um, that it, they're getting ready for the next revision, 
by adding this feature mm-hmm. because why would they add bluetooth with the current switch it kind of doesn't make sense unless there was a specific need to do so um maybe they're looking at the addition of new hardware that and i'm not talking about next gen or new revision hardware i'm talking about peripherals that utilize bluetooth for some reason you know some some cool peripherals that they're they're thinking about making but it does seem like this is something that they're including and getting ready for a new revision to me i mean when i saw that i was like that seems very odd you know that number one bluetooth wasn't a part of the switch to begin with because i was a little surprised (laughs) that it wasn't in the firmware and now that they're turning it on well they're adding it for you know revision 12 of the firmware it does give me some hesitation and think well is that is this for you know a new revision and look we're only speculating of course but it's it's one of those things where it seems like every so often they just drop interesting additions to the firmware that make you just think wow they have to be you know preparing and getting ready a new revision of this hardware now i mean it's it's almost obvious that they're doing this without you know showing their entire hand right and i think this is just another one of those things that they're doing they're just prepping they're getting ready while you know obviously dev kits are already in the hands of some developers out there um you know the public are getting kind of prepped for you know the the next revision so yeah i think this is an interesting announcement um that they came out with i was a little surprised i didn't think 12 had really anything substantial um you know with it but um here we are you know the additional bluetooth i think is 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 quite interesting to to see and hopefully you know um this will mean that we will get some type of new hardware revision this year as we've as we're speculated on yeah, when I looked up or I read into all of the 12.0 background updates, so this is all stuff the consumer has no idea about. This is something we wouldn't know without social media unless you were a data miner yourself. Right. It does seem as though they are enabling and activating a lot of background features that the current Switch doesn't have support of, Bluetooth being one of them, the dock enabling 4K support, all of these are things that the Switch we have right now doesn't have. And the first thing that stood out to me was this is, as you know, as you mentioned, this is Nintendo maybe making a firmware baseline for the revision itself. Right. They are setting it up. This is the foundation that all the dev kits going out in the next several months are going to come with 12.00. You have Bluetooth access, you have the 4K support, and that's all you need. This doesn't mean the Switch revision is imminent. It's just them laying down a foundation. Yep. This will be updated over the, you know, in the coming months. And it just gives a general idea of maybe what we can anticipate in terms of new features. Bluetooth is really something the current Switch should have had. And it's kind of sad that something as basic as Bluetooth is viewed as a meaningful addition <laughs> to Nintendo hardware. Well, again, I was surprised that <laughs> it wasn't even there. Like, I thought, well, it has to have Bluetooth. It's just one of those things I've never personally used, but there we are, you know? Yeah, and 
like the 4K dock, as we discussed, they need a 4K dock for the Switch Pro. It's the only way you could deliver a 4K image meaningfully is you need a brand new dock. And as I mentioned, it could just be compatibility with the current Switch working with that dock moving forward. It doesn't have to be anything too, you know, too substantial. But it is curious to look at this data mined from the point of, is Nintendo simply prepping for dev kit distribution and giving them that foundation of a firmware to work with? Because it does seem like signs are kind of pointing in that direction. And to me, that means we're probably still bare minimum six to eight months before release. Yeah. Because this would indicate to me that mass shipments of dev kits has not happened yet. Enough bigger studios have some sort of access, but the vast majority of studios do not. And maybe that's going to change in the next couple of months. It really depends on how Nintendo is, you know, producing these dev kits. We know there's a chip shortage that's not going to be relieved until potentially the second half of 2022. So all these game companies are impacted by it. You had Foxcom come out and say gaming is not our priority. So there's a lot of unknown variables at play, but it does seem like Nintendo is gearing up development kits with this new firmware moving forward. And if it is just that base foundation of firmware, at least it gives us an idea that, hey, there should be some Bluetooth compatibility. But overall, there's really nothing that exciting in this data mind. I've seen it spread around where people are treating it as gospel. And as we've said in previous episodes, a data mine is one piece of a 10,000 piece puzzle. Yep, absolutely. It really doesn't give us anywhere close to the full picture. It just gives us a very small glimpse at what is actually happening. But hey, Bluetooth, for it finally to come to the Switch, (laughs) hey, that's cool. I know a lot of people have Bluetooth headphones, and I believe there is a accessory maker who released a Bluetooth add-on for the Switch. You plug it into the headphone jack, and you can use it. I forget the name of it from the top of my head right now, but hey, Nintendo's finally getting with modern times and modern technology, so that's encouraging. But overall, the data mine... There's really nothing too substantial there. I mean, a lot of people kept saying, oh, look, Aula is still alive. I'd be very surprised if Nintendo releases that Aula revision. And I think in our previous episode, we gave very solid foundation as to why it doesn't make much sense. Unless Aula is just the Tegra X1 with an OLED screen, the Pro coming in early 22 should be the new base model moving forward yeah i mean you're right it just could be the ticker x1 with an oled screen um you know that that may just be what the base switch ends up being for a while so it could really be anything at this point and that's that's ultimately what what we you know what we're saying and I, i agree with you i mean it's an interesting firmware to to consider in some regard but like when I saw this announcement, I wasn't really that that you know excited about what was you know what was in there. In fact, I went the other way. It's like, well, where the hell are my folders? Where are my themes? You know, we're still waiting. We're still waiting on some basic stuff for them to add. You know, to these these firmwares. But um, yeah, I mean, 
ultimately, Nate, I think you're right. You know, there's there's more smoke that that comes out every single week. It seems like about a revision and you know firmwares yes they 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 can definitely suggest that there is a new revision coming they are prepping for new revision but yeah i mean it also tells me that yeah it may not be a while you know it may not be for a while until we see this new hardware come out it could be well into 2021 before it's announced yeah i think it's best to use the data mine as just a curiosity look at maybe you know, a feature that could be introduced, but people shouldn't be looking at the data mine and coming to conclusions. Like nothing in this suggests that the revision is imminent. There's nothing in this to suggest that it's going to be something different than what we have discussed now countless times of a DLSS new SOC switch revision. There's nothing here that suggest that information is inaccurate. It doesn't suggest a different model that is still using the X1. All it is really saying is that Nintendo has added new functionality and it could be for no reason. Typically Nintendo doesn't do meaningless efforts. There is a reason behind everything that they do. So Bluetooth can just be a new feature that the Switch Pro will introduce. Yeah. And hey, you can that can be exciting for them when they launch the new revision. But ultimately, just view this information as a curiosity. It's something that may be happening. It's happening behind the scenes. Don't use it as a way to come to a conclusion because there are many, many pieces between this data mine and the goal line, and you cannot leap from one to the other. And I would definitely tell people to give pause before doing that. Because there's just simply nothing here in the data mine that's too substantial to indicate anything meaningful beyond a new dock and potential Bluetooth support. Yep. I agree with that. (laughs) (laughs) We can now pivot into some of the Streamlab questions for this week. Our first donation is from Shamsa who generously donated $100 and is one of the recipients of this episode's dedication. No question. We then had a $1 donation from U212, who writes, what are some hard to rare or digital only PlayStation games that you would recommend getting digitally before the PlayStation Network stores shut down? I'm a fan of basically every genre. Thanks so much. Love the show. Um, I mean, on PlayStation 3, I would tell you to get Siren, yes. House of the Dead 4. Siren's definitely one that I, I would pick. Um, trying to think of some others. Digital only, though. I mean, there's definitely a list out there. In fact, I think one of the outlets did a pretty comprehensive guide on all the digital games that will be lost forever. Um, mm-hmm. And unfortunately, it escapes me which one it was. It may have been Polygon, but I could be wrong. Um, but they pretty much went through everything that's going to disappear. So see if you can you know, just Google that and, and come up with your own kind of ideas there. But there's definitely some some good games in that list. Yeah, definitely. Like, yeah, from the top of my mind, Siren is definitely one I would recommend. Uh, Pixel Junk Eden 1. Um, 
I mean, there's a lot. So yeah, definitely Google it. I'm sure there's numerous articles out there giving the top 10, top 20 lists. Then had a dollar donation from Jackie G, who writes, did the physical version of Collection of Mana not sell well? I feel like I can find it pretty cheap everywhere, and I find it bizarre that Square chose only to release that physically instead of Collection of Saga, Legend of Mana, or Saga Frontier. I assume it did not sell all that well. Collection of Mana is still a pretty niche franchise, and I remember when it went on sale a couple of years ago, I think it went down to like $20, and people were like, pick it up, it's going to be rare. It's not rare. <laughs> Yeah, I was one of those people that picked it up for 20 thinking it would be rare. <laughs> he then had a $100 donation from a Merry Gamer Y2, the second recipient of today's dedication. And they write, do you think Sony's recent business decisions regarding store closures, backwards compatibility, and failure to respond to Game Pass marks the start of the decline of PlayStation superiority? No. I don't think it starts the decline of PlayStation superiority. Sony is simply, they're targeting a different market than what Microsoft currently is. Game Pass is still a very risky initiative. It's paying off for Microsoft right now. It's something we will find out if it works for them moving into the future. But PlayStation, they're still the market leader. They are still doing incredibly well it's just that Microsoft is playing catch up. So they're more exciting for us as onlookers to watch. They're making moves. They seem like they're being very aggressive and making these you know, new deals and risks. And Sony is doing what they always do. They deliver a quality product with some quality exclusives and they're still doing that and they're doing it well. It's simply a case of Sony doesn't have to try as hard to win because they're winning. Yeah, I, I agree with everything you said. Then had a $3 donation from Bear Treks. Writes, I can't shake the feeling that Nintendo is becoming complacent and arrogant in the second half of the Switch's life. Some of the latest releases, announcements, and marketing strategy speaks to this. Do either of you fine gentlemen agree? Why or why not? Well, look, I think Nintendo's always been arrogant. Like, that's that's never been in question. Um, as far as the, the first part of that, I know it's a, a bit of a cop-out, but it kind of remains to be seen. I mean, I think we'll know more at E3. You know, we just talked about potentially what we can see. But to your point, I mean, I think that Nintendo does understand that they've had just you know an absolute stellar four years and they have to deliver you know the next four years in the same fashion and and maybe even ex exceed you know which is going to be very very difficult to do but based mm -hmm. on on what we know is coming what we speculate is is coming and new hardware that we believe is coming then i think they're making the right moves, but we'll, we'll have to see how it plays out. Yeah, Nintendo, I would say they are being complacent. When I look at the Switch of 2017, it felt like a company that was hungry. They just came off a colossal failure, and they knew they had to regain trust and goodwill with the consumer base. 
So they were throwing out these big games. They were getting a little experimental. And in the last couple of years, it feels like they're just they're playing it safe. They're on cruise control. They know what they can get away with. And by having good third party and indie support, it helps them. But it does feel as though Nintendo, they could be a little more aggressive when it comes to software and be a little more experimental. I'd say the last true experimental release was Ring Fit Adventure. Yeah. And it's done well for them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I was hoping that, you know, the Switch was really going to embrace that kind of a little of that DS mentality. Let's create these new IP and these new ways to play. And they really haven't done it outside of Ring Fit Adventure. So I think it's just Nintendo. That's not so much arrogance as complacency. And, you know, they're doing really well. So why mess with a winning formula? I think that's really the case that we're seeing here with them. Yeah. Then had a $10 donation from Selendrith. Writes, why don't Microsoft buy more Japanese studios so they can sell more hardware there, particularly particularly releasing more JRPGs, which Xbox is really lacking. Love your videos. Keep up the good work both. I don't, I don't um, know if um, buying studios correlates to selling more units, you know, one-to-one in the way yes. that we think it would. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a, it's a lot more complicated than, than that. I mean, if you go back to the days of the, the OG Xbox, you know, Microsoft did have have a Japanese presence. They had studios from software was working on games. They had, you know, obviously a partnership with Sega. It was not, you know, as successful as they wanted it to be. And I think there's a it's very, very complicated, you know. And I think there's a lot of moving parts to that to that whole aspect of trying to sell hardware in Japan. Yeah, it's it's also very difficult to buy a Japanese studio for a American company. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, Microsoft had made good deals with Japanese studios in the past. Like the original Xbox, you had Ninja Gaiden. They had a lot of deals with Sega at the time, aside from just like, you know, Team Ninja. And it really didn't do much for the platform in the region. Even with the early Xbox 360, they had deals with Lost Odyssey, Blue Dragon. Yeah, they went out of their way to try to cater to that Japanese market and the Japanese market simply didn't care. Microsoft will always have an uphill battle for them in the Japanese region. And some of it is simply because they are a Western company. They aren't really that open to embracing Microsoft. Even if they did come with quality software, it's always going to be a struggle for them. And buying Japanese studios really isn't going to solve that problem. Then had a $5 donation from Mr. Pete, 1985. Writes, do you think we could have gotten better performance out of the PlayStation 4 and Xbox One if there were not so many layers of security? Seems like every last-gen game was hitting CPU limits, or was the CPU just really that underpowered? I think both. Um, the CPU was, CPUs were definitely underpowered. You know, mm-hmm. that was the age of, you know fast gpus slow cpus really to cut costs but you know it's also the total package as well i mean you know you got to consider the mechanical hard drives and 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 stuff like that as well um ram speeds ram limitations 
overall i mean i think you know the total package of a game console is cheap because they are cutting corners in 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 some areas where they just they have to to keep the cost down and ultimately yeah the cpu really is is the big bottleneck you know for for the last gen systems you then had a five dollar donation from matthew reeves who writes is yuji naka a talentless hack who somehow by chance <laughs> made one good game back in 1996 damn man wow wow <laughs> wow. wow that is that, that's quite harsh of yuji naka um I mean, he was a programmer on Fantasy Star back in the day before Sonic the Hedgehog. He was also the programmer of, you know, Nights into Dreams, and he was the director of Choo Choo Rocket. Yeah, I mean, uh, it just goes to show you, you you just judged on your last game, you know? Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean... <laughs> you're, as good, has, you're as good as your last game, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, and that's very true. I mean, yeah... Alan Wonderworld is a mess in many, many areas, and he was the director of the project. But Yuji Naka, I would say he's just a he's a developer and a designer of his time. He never tr- fully transitioned into 3D gaming well, but definitely not a talentless hack. He has created some of the most iconic Sega franchises in history, and I believe he will be well regarded in the industry for years to come. Hopefully he does come out with a big quality game after the disaster that was Balan Wonderworld because he is a talented designer, he's a talented producer and I think he deserves to go out on top and not be thought of as a talentless hack from the <laughs> mid 90s. <laughs> Then had a $10 donation from Inspector Galifianakis, who writes, could you guys give your top picks from the Wii U and 3DS eShop? I'm trying to get what I can while I can. Love the podcast. Keep them high and tight. Oh. Um, let me, Wii U, I would recommend Fatal Frame. Yeah, I would recommend Fatal Frame. And Definitely. Affordable Space Adventure. Yep. This is one of pick. the few games that use the gamepad incredibly well. It's the game's literally not playable on any other platform. Um maybe some of the NES remix games, but I believe they might have had a physical release as well. Yeah. I mean, uh, the standout for me is Fatal Frame. It's the yes. only one I can think of. I mean, there's probably some more that, that didn't get physical, but that would be the big one for me. Yeah, Fatal Frame. Um, uh, Pushmo? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Pushmo's a good one, too. Pushmo's fun. Yeah. Uh, if you really want to play Devil's Third, I guess you could get the digital copy. Well, yeah, I mean, I think the physicals <laughs> are kind of up there in price now. Yeah, they went up pretty high. Um, trying to think of any any other digital games from those eShops. What um, about the 3DS? Gunman Clive. Gunman Clive. Wow. I haven't heard that name in a while. <laughs> uh, Pushmo, also on the 3DS. Yep. Um, trying to think of some other digital 3DS games. Oh, um, I'd get the 3D 
classics like Excite Bike. Oh yeah, yeah, the, the Sega stuff. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, the Se- Sega had um, they did Outrun and Afterburner and um, yes. was it like the Sega Ages collection? I don't remember. Yeah, um, Sega Ages. That's right. That stuff's pretty good. Yeah, that, that stuff's good. So yeah, give those a search. If those are games you enjoy. I'd give those a buy. Then had a five dollar donation from Luca BGT. Right, hi guys. Keep up the good work. Your show is always entertaining and informative. I was wondering if you had any thoughts on the rumors about a new Nintendo retro game delivery service. Do you think it's realistic? I'd love to see Pokemon Black and White on my TV. I assume you are referring to the Nintendo Switch Online revamp rumors that suggested that it would expand their retro offerings with you know, new consoles and such. Um, I mean, Nintendo Switch Online will evolve. They will add new consoles. It's just a matter of when, not if, and which platform. Um, I mean, it's realistic. Nintendo has to expand Nintendo Switch Online to continue to provide value for the service. Black and white for Pokemon... Maybe you'd see that on the service one day. I don't think it's imminent, though. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about the Nintendo Switch Online service. I mean, you're right. It, they will have expand it, evolve it. It just is really a matter of time and, and what that will entail. I, I still think it's going to be iterative, really, more than a big you know blast of some really cool new stuff. So I think I've mentioned before, but you know, I would expect... Game Boy, Game Boy Color, and Game Boy Advance to be the next iteration of that. Yes. Then had a $100 donation from the Zelda Sensei, the third recipient of this episode's dedication, who writes, 3D All-Stars was announced. It was a limited release. Can you imagine that you knew Earthbound was a limited release in 1995, or Fire Emblem Path of Radiance in 2005? My question is, how can you tell a game in a store is going to be rare someday? You, There is no surefire way to know a game is going to be rare. I've seen countless times where people assume a game is going to be rare, and it more often than not isn't. That's true. That is very um, true. Unless you specifically know the print run of yeah. a game and you know it's never getting another one. I think the only measure that is a indicator not necessarily a you know an absolutely um you know necessity an indicator would be the number of copies that were printed if it's a low print run um there's sometimes the possibility that you know it'll become a lot more sought after but that's not always true you know it's not always true as well so um yeah it's I mean, some games that get a very, very high-fetching price right now can be something as common as Pokemon Fire Red for the Game Boy Advance. A complete in-box copy of that can go for close to $200. This is a game that sold almost 12 million copies. That is, by definition, not rare. Um, Or a game you use, like Fire Emblem Path of Radiance. The reason that game is so valuable 
is because it was a limited print in North America. Fire Emblem was not popular in 2005 and it didn't sell well. And Fire Emblem is now a popular franchise to the Nintendo fandom. So it's a highly sought after game by those new fans. Like Fire Emblem Path of Radiance is a game I bought in 2005 for $50. It was a game I wanted to play. Never crossed my mind it would ever become rare. I've traded in games that have become rare. Because at the time, I didn't know. And I'm sure like games like Earthbound, if people knew they were going to be rare, you never would have opened them. And with Nintendo, it's even more difficult. Because like the Pokemon games, and it can even be a Mario or a Zelda game, the reason the price goes so high, even though they sell millions of copies, is that the owner is reluctant to sell. Yeah, exactly. So there, there's not a big used base to find the game. So there's really no way to tell if a game is going to be rare. I mean, MVG, you bought Little Town Hero. I did. <laughs> I feel like I... Uh... Wasted my money on that one. <laughs> it might be rare one day. <laughs> it might be, but you can still buy it as far as I know. Um, oh, yeah. There's still copies you can get for it. So, I mean, it may become rare one day. We'll see. Yeah, like I'd say the only recent example I can think of where you could tell a game was going to be rare was Devil's Third on the Wii U. And it was for two reasons. It was the Wii U. And Nintendo really didn't want to publish that game. So... The initial print run was, I think, only a few thousand, but then they sold out and people were like, I want Devil's Third, so they did another print. Yeah, I remember that very well because I had an original print run of the game and I was (laughs) like, oh my God, I'm I'm sitting on a a game that's going to become really valuable. Um, And it kind of, I mean, it's it's up there in price only because it's Devil's Third and it's a little bit out there, but it's not... You know, it's not top tier as far as, you know, resale and stuff. Um, I think ultimately another factor is when a system is about to hit its end of life date as well. You know, there's usually a lot more people Mm -hmm. interested in buying physical copies of games. And in some instances, because they were, you know, again, low print runs um, and and things like that, limited editions, special editions, um, some of these games will command a higher price. Yeah, I would think of like Twilight Princess on the GameCube. That's yeah, that's a that, great example. Yeah. That gets a fairly high price because Nintendo didn't ship a lot of copies because the Wii was coming out and they knew Twilight Princess was going to be yep. the must have launch game for the Wii. Yeah. So Yeah, there's there's no rhyme or reason to what's rare. I mean, one of the rarest games I own is Dragon Ball GT Final Bout for the PlayStation One. Now this had two prints. One was by Atari, I believe the other one was by Namco or Bandai. Right. And the American version for the, uh, which version was it? For the Bandai version, no, the Atari one, you can look on the disc and it tells you which number you were out of, I think, a 10,000 print. Right. And now when you think about only 10,000 copies of the, oh, it's the Bandai Namco one has that number on it. The Bandai Namco one, I think it was 10,000 copies for all of North America. You'd say, that's rare. The game's worth nothing. Yeah. It's like 40 bucks. Wouldn't, but you would think 
a game like that would seek a high price. It doesn't. Yep. It did when I bought it. But times changed and the game's not that good. Then had a $5 donation from Brian T. Who writes, why does Nintendo make it so hard to play their old games? Are those more difficult to emulate on Switch than we might think? Are they trying to protect their brand somehow? It's, discour- it's discouraging that there are no modern legal options to play old games. Um, I mean, the Switch has plenty power to run everything up to the GameCube um, and and the Wii, as we've seen with you know Mario Sunshine. So really, that's not uh, a reason. Um, it all comes down to I don't want to say Nintendo is you know neglecting or they're they're turning their back on their legacy because that would not be the right thing to say i just it to me it just feels like they have never really prioritized this this has not really been something that has been important enough for them to to do um, especially after the virtual console even though it was such a great and beloved um you know system for fans it didn't really bring in the money that they were expecting. You know, the numbers weren't there. The, 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 the marketing data suggested that for the amount of time that they invested into the virtual console, it really didn't provide them with much. So I think with the Switch, and in some ways they had to, they had to just go back to basics. You know, they didn't sugarcoat the system. It was all about making good games. And look, Nintendo's always been about making good games. I'm not suggesting that's you know that they they didn't, but the Switch was a very simple system in that in that regard. It it had one job. It didn't have any streaming, you know, apps on there, it didn't have Netflix and all that stuff, at least initially. All it did was play, you know, good games or or the, the games on the system. So as as a result of that, you know, now they're in this situation where they they have a a massive history and legacy of games and most of them unfortunately cannot be accessed but i am hopeful and it goes back to the nintendo switch online discussion from just you know a couple of minutes ago that they will start to bring some of these things forward and, and i'm hopeful of that and I, I think they will over time but um yeah i mean you know i don't i don't fault them for for not having something available um i think they had to make the you know those moves to make the switch successful but hopefully they'll address it yeah hopefully they do address their approach to legacy software because it a lot of it is partially to protect their brand they want to continue to have value in those ips and games and nintendo if they can sell you super mario world for 15 dollars again they will yep because that's their bread and butter. Then had a dollar donation from Tedesco. Writes, hey, Nate and MVG, love your guys' dialogue and chemistry. As someone who loves Mario Maker 2 way too much, and with Nintendo stop, stopping updates fairly early in its life, should I have any hope for a Mario Maker 3? Also, hey, from Massachusetts. <sighs> oh, um... <laughs> um, I go, just say it, Nate. There, there's there's probably not much hope. I'd there? say there's very little hope yeah. for Mario Maker I mean, Three. It, I it might be something they they could reveal with the new revision. You know, 
um, a 4K Mario yeah. Maker with some cool announcements, enhancements. But it's very hard for me to see a, a Mario Maker game. Yeah, it Mario Maker One felt like the perfect product at the perfect time. The gamepad, you know, the whole experience was fresh, new, and exciting. Mario Maker Two, even though it improved in so many areas didn't convey that same excitement and it was you know you could see it in the sales and the community it simply never reached the same highs and i think it partly was because the creation tool wasn't as seamless the gamepad was you know just simply perfect way of creation and the switch touchscreen wasn't quite as perfect and Mario Maker 3 can't dismiss the possibility of it coming sometime down the line you know maybe at the start of a new generation but probably you know within the next five years I don't think we see a new Mario Maker and had a five dollar donation from Skittittles it writes with Suda51 back in the headlines again how do we convince WB there's a demand for a port or remaster of Lollipop Chainsaw? Ooh. I'd even settle for Xbox backwards compatibility. I'm tired of games getting stuck on a platform due to music licensing. You know, that's one game that I've always wanted to play and I never got around to it. I actually have a copy of it. Um, <laughs> so I would love if they brought that, you know, via backward compatibility. But yeah, I think it's hard for me to see it coming. Bit. Yeah, I played a few hours of it. It's a typical Suda game. You know, it's a little little janky. Yeah. But yeah, if music licensing is an issue, yeah, they could re-release it by removing those tracks, including new tracks. It's probably just a case of I don't remember how commercially successful Lollipop Chainsaw Girl was. So it may just not be worth the investment for Grasshopper yeah. to go back to. Then had a $4.20 donation from Mr. Stud Muffin, who writes, Hey, Nate and MVG, do you think the Wii is sort of responsible for Nintendo being a generation behind Sony and Microsoft in terms of power? Do you guys wish Nintendo hadn't done the motion gimmick and stuck to a regular console for the Wii instead, I, I don't. I don't wish that. Like, I, I think, <laughs> you know, I'm not really fussed that the Switch doesn't compete with the current generation of, you mm-hmm. know, of hardware, and Nintendo doesn't either. I mean, I, I get your point. You know, with the GameCube, it was sitting right there with the OG Xbox and the PlayStation Two, and, and I think out of the three, it was it wasn't the most powerful but it was definitely more powerful than the ps2 um yes i don't i don't necessarily agree with with you i mean you know i think they had to innovate um and they did so i'm happy to you know with the approach that they've taken and look all the systems they've released since the wii i think uh, are good systems even i even like the the nintendo wii u I, i like it quite a lot actually um so i you know i i'm i'm pretty good with you know the path they've chosen here yeah with the wii i think nintendo made the right choice 
for them at the time. When the Wii came out in 2006, we have to remember HD TVs really weren't that big of a thing, especially in Japan. And HD game development was expensive. It was leading to a lot of studio closures. And Nintendo looked at that and said, let's stick with SD game development. It's cheaper. It's something we have perfected. We can make a unique piece of hardware. And I mean, we went on to sell over 100 million units. Um, Microsoft and Sony chased power and doing so put a lot of double A studios out of business. They could not recoup costs with game development. Um, Yeah, I think Nintendo made the choice that was best for them. In terms of, you know, power, Nintendo continues to make an educated choice that serves their needs. The Tegra X1 at the time was still a pretty efficient and powerful chip for 2017. Yeah, it couldn't compete with like a PlayStation 4 or an Xbox One, you know, toe-to-toe. But when you look at the form factor, this is a pretty powerful piece of hardware. Um, I think if Nintendo were to go in a direct approach of power to compete with like the PlayStation 5 and Series X, it wouldn't do them really any favors. And I know a lot of people say, well, if it has similar hardware and processing power and all that, it would get all these third-party ports. Potentially. It still comes down to, is there a market for these games? Even if the port only cost, we'll say a million dollars, they still have to sell X amount of copies. And what we saw with like the GameCube is they were getting these ports, but that audience still wasn't there. So you saw these third-party developers start to you know, retreat. They weren't given as many games because there was no market to sell to. I think Nintendo potentially could find themselves in a similar situation if they stop doing, you know, their own unique selling point. If, you know, if we want to call it a gimmick, we can call it a gimmick. But pure power really isn't Nintendo's thing. They haven't chased pure power now in, you know, almost 20 years. Nintendo does their best work when Nintendo is being Nintendo and they go to the beat of their own drum. And, you know, raw power is never going to be their focus. So... I think for the Wii, Nintendo made the smart decision for themselves. If they chase power, who knows what that company would be today. Nintendo could have faltered. They could have had a system sell worse than the GameCube. Yeah. And they would not be where they are today. So I think they did what they had to. Then had a dollar donation from Liam Warner, who writes, This probably isn't realistic. But MVG, you should reach out to whoever ends up picking up Castlevania Resurrection to try and dump it for preservation. Again, <laughs> probably uh, unrealistic. It's currently the small sum of $22,000, but it doesn't hurt to try. Well, that since then, that eBay listing got pulled. Um, most likely what's happened is a private seller reached out to the individual and he accepted it and it's been sold outside of eBay. Look, I would love to dump that game if there was a way to do so. I hate to say it, but we probably won't hear about that game ever again. That's such a shame. Yep. We then had a follow-up $1 donation from Liam Werner, who writes, With Alpha Dream bankrupt, 
Do you think there is a future of Mario and Luigi's games? Or are crappy at worst, mediocre at best, Paper Mario games, the future for Mario RPGs moving forward. I was really sad to see the Bowser's Inside Story remake do so terribly. Are the recent Mario Paper Mario games really that bad? Um, I mean, I guess you know there was some some outcry about how easy the mechanics were in the you know the newest. Um, Paper Mario games, I guess. How it was pretty much a assured victory every single time you got into battle. I mean, I, it, I'm not really the best person to answer this question because I guess I'm not that invested in these games as much as maybe um, someone else is. But I don't really think that they were that bad, though, you know? I mean, it's... Technically, I mean, Mario and Luigi games can come back. Nintendo can give them to another developer that they see fit. And maybe without Mario and Luigi, the Paper Mario franchise will take on some of those elements that people enjoyed and they, you know, blend the two. Yeah. Or, I mean, the Paper Mario games seem to still have very strong writing. I know Origami King, I saw a lot of people say the writing and the story of the game is phenomenal. People cried during some sequence. And it was really the combat that people didn't enjoy. And people continue to reference Thousand Year Door, a game that is now 15 years old. And the new direction for Paper Mario, people are very vocal that they don't like it, but Nintendo is finding a lot of success with it. The Mario and Luigi remakes, especially Bowser's Inside Story remake, it did terribly because they released it at a horrendous time. It's difficult to release games on like the 3DS when the Switch was coming out and really securing its future. That's Nintendo just, they wanted to continue the life of the 3DS a little too long. And unfortunately, Bowser's Inside Story was the victim of that business decision. But I I don't think it's the end of Mario and Luigi. And I'd be a little more hopeful for Paper Mario moving forward. And that is the final Streamlabs question for this week. Again, if you'd like to support the channel, we have a Streamlabs link in our description on YouTube below. Make a donation of any dollar amount, ask a question. We will answer it at the end of the episode. If you donate $100 or more, we will dedicate the episode to you. And today's episode is dedicated to Shamsa, Zelda Sensei, and Amerigamer YT all of whom donated $100 this week. We thank you for your generosity and continued support. And I'd like to thank MVG for joining me as always. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. And if you enjoyed this video, be sure to give the video a like, subscribe to the channel if you haven't already, and let us know your thoughts on E3's return and the recent Switch data mine in the comment section below. And until next time, continue to embrace the hate.